In his 2006 book, The Cosmic Landscape, Stanford University theoretical physicist Leonard Susskind notes that, quote, the properties of gravity, especially its strength, could have been different. In fact, it is an unexplained miracle that gravity is as weak as it is, end quote. Perhaps this brings to mind the Apostle Paul's words to the Corinthians that the, quote, weakness of God is stronger than man, end quote. Gravity, so far as we know, is what holds the universe together on large scales. Any stronger or any weaker, and we don't have the universe as we know it. This is fine-tuning, one example of fine-tuning. And in this episode, we will continue to talk about some of the fascinating examples of fine-tuning including what we all take for granted, gravity. We will also be talking about the delicate balance of nuclear forces and gravity in stars, neutrons, the electromagnetic force, and Albert Einstein's greatest blunder, the cosmological constant. Even when Einstein made mistakes, they still turned out to be fairly brilliant, as we shall see. Consider what scientists call dark energy, for example. At present, this mysterious force is undetectable, invisible, and yet is allegedly responsible for the mind-boggling speeds at which the fabric of space and time of the universe is expanding. It likewise accounts for nearly 70% of all the energy in the universe. Often astronomers will use a balloon to demonstrate this expansion. Imagine for a minute our universe limited to the surface area of a balloon, and on the balloon you can draw some dots with a marker which represent galaxies. As you begin to inflate the balloon, the surface will stretch and expand leaving more and more space between the dots. In this analogy, we know that gas causes the expansion of the balloon, but in relation to the universe, astronomers do not know exactly what it is that is causing the universe to expand, and expand so rapidly. So, dark energy is theorized to act as a kind of anti-gravity that is forcing the expansion of our stretchy balloon-like fabric of the universe. Enter a little Greek letter called the lambda. Capitalized, it looks like an upside-down V, its lowercase counterpart looks like an upside-down lowercase y. Albert Einstein first used the little lambda in an early equation he wrote about the universe. He did not like the idea of an expanding universe, so perhaps on the back of an old envelope, he came up with this parking brake symbol and placed it within his computations in order to maintain his predilection for a static cosmos. But when Edwin Hubble's discoveries in the late 1920s seemed to prove the universe was in fact expanding, Einstein called his little lambda his greatest blunder. He subsequently released the parking brake, and ever since, galaxies have been freely racing about in the heavens. But that was not the end of the lambda. In 2011, three scientists were awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics for factoring Einstein's greatest blunder back into the cosmic equation. Instead of being a parking brake, the lambda served to represent the very force which drove the universe's expansion. Paradoxically, an attempt to keep the universe from moving about became the very means by which physicists demonstrated it was moving about. This is the, quote, why the cosmological constant rose from the dead, end quote, according to astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. Quote, Lambda suddenly acquired a physical reality that needed a name, and so dark energy took center stage in the cosmic drama, suitably capturing both the mystery and our associated ignorance of its cause, end quote. Here in May of 2018, the sun is making headlines for the faster-than-expected disappearance of its spots. The sun has spots, you might ask? Indeed it does. 
And what exactly are sunspots? In the simplest of terms, they are dark blotches on the surface of the sun caused by enigmatic concentrations of powerful magnetic forces within the sun's interior. These spots are actually more like the size of planets, ranging in diameter anywhere between that of Earth and Jupiter, and sometimes can be seen from the ground without the aid of a telescope. But do not try looking at the sun without the necessary filters and eye protection, of course. The sunspots go on an 11-year cycle, on average, of activity and inactivity. At the moment, the period of sunspot inactivity has begun sooner than originally predicted. Not a single sunspot is visible at the moment, and there has not been a sunspot spotted for over a month now. What this inactivity means for Earth exactly, I do not myself know. Except without these sunspots, there are no solar eruptions or flares, which, if aimed at Earth, can knock out satellites and power grids and create all kinds of other terrestrial chaos. For the time being, though, at least all that will not be a pressing concern. The sun seems to be rather calm and still. Certain attributes of our star that many other stars simply do not have. And without a very specific balance of forces within the sun's interior, there simply would be no Earth. Part of what makes up the sun's interior and the fundamental building blocks of chemistry is the neutron. Two fundamental forces of physics, the strong nuclear force which binds protons and neutrons together in the nucleus of an atom, and the electromagnetic force, which is a combination of electricity and magnetism by which all light radiates throughout the universe, are balanced so precisely that if the ratio of strength between them were adjusted even by something as ridiculously small as one part in 10 to the 16th, there would be no stable atoms and thus no chemistry and ultimately no biological life. Nothing, really. Even the masses of the proton and neutron have to be within a very specific range to allow for atoms to form. And then there is the wonderful mystery of light itself. Physicist-turned-Anglican priest Sir John Polkinghorne makes an intriguing connection between the nature of light as discovered by physicists in the 20th century and the doctrine of Christ as both God and man. Quote, The 19th century had shown quite decisively that light possessed wave-like properties. However, at the start of the 20th century, phenomena were discovered that could only be understood on the basis of accepting the revolutionary ideas of Max Planck and Albert Einstein that treated light as sometimes behaving in a particle-like way, as if it were composed of discrete packets of energy. Yet the notion of a wave-particle duality appeared to be absolutely nonsensical. After all, a wave is spread out and oscillating, while a particle is concentrated and bullet-like. How could anything manifest such contradictory properties? Nevertheless, wave-particle duality was empirically endorsed as a fact of experience, and so some radical rethinking was evidently called for. After much intellectual struggle, this eventually led to modern quantum theory. End quote. Polkinghorne goes on to note, quote, In the New Testament, the writers knew that when they referred to Jesus, they were speaking about someone who had lived a human life in Palestine within living memory. And yet they also found that when they spoke about their experiences of the risen Christ, they were driven to use divine-sounding language about him. For example, Jesus is repeatedly given the title Lord, despite the fact that the monotheistic Jews associated this title with the one true God of Israel, using it as a substitute for the unutterable divine name in the reading of Scripture. Paul can even take verses from the Hebrew Bible that clearly refer to Israel's God and apply them to Jesus, 
For example, compare Philippians 2, 10 and 11 with Isaiah 45, 23 and 1 Corinthians 8, 6 with Deuteronomy 6, 4. How could this possibly make sense? After all, Jesus was crucified and Jews saw this form of execution as being a sign of divine rejection since Deuteronomy 21:23 proclaims a curse on anyone hung on a tree. Experience and understanding seemed as much at odds here as they did in the case of the physicists thinking about light, end quote. So we hope you enjoy this part two of our series on fine-tuning with Alan Hainline. Well, Alan, if you could, uh, I know that fine-tuning was something that uh, encouraged you in your faith. It actually helped you through a prolonged period of doubt. Uh, the, the physics and everything uh, reignited your faith, if you will. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, I uh, did go through a period of, of doubts, uh, at times fairly severe in the sort of the late 90s or so. And I was led to really study a lot of different areas for evidence for God and Christianity, things like that. And this was one of, I would say, one of the key areas that helped me because I was bothered. Part of what caused doubts was just working in science and technology and I think encountering, you know, people always point at, well, look at all these incredibly intelligent scientists who are atheists, and how do you process that? Right. It's a very difficult aspect of our culture today. The really smart people uh, don't seem to have any need or take any thought about uh, religion, let alone Christianity or how it all applies to what they're doing. Exactly. And I had some close friends that had lost, lost their faith and were you know, bringing up various intellectual things that so got me into a mode of, of searching and, and at times doubting pretty significantly. But I, this was one area, having a degree in physics, that caught my eye that I wasn't terribly familiar with. Mm-hmm. And uh, I studied it some, and it was pretty astounding to, to really think in terms of how improbable it looked from a naturalistic perspective. If there's no God, how right. do we get so lucky? And I know right. that you know a lot, lot more could go into that conversation in terms of the candidate theory of the multiverse and things like that. Yeah, we can but, talk about that in just a minute. Uh, one of the things I think uh, is interesting uh, from the gentleman, uh, British astronomer, who quoted, who uh, made famous the term Big Bang, was uh, Fred Hoyle. And uh, Fred was not being, uh, it was a kind of condescending, snarky remark when he... Yes, he, very know, pejorative yeah, in his initial Fred use. Fred didn't like a moving universe. He didn't like it when they <laughs> discovered the, the, the universe was expanding and was not static. And so Mr. Hoyle's uh, specialty was, uh, he, he delved into the physics of carbon atoms. And I want to read a quote that is, that is often quoted uh, in, in, in the literature on this topic. He says that in looking at all the intricacies of, of carbon, just as an example, he says a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a superintelligence has monkeyed with the physics as well as with the chemistry and biology and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to be so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. But Hoyle never, uh, as far as I know, capitulated to any sort of even a a mild theism or a deism. He remained an agnostic atheist, I think, uh, till the end of his life. But uh, that kind of looking at the details, Alan, is what what brought you back around in in some sense. So uh, what are some 
specific examples of fine-tuning that might be things that uh, most people may or may not know about? Can you give us some examples? Sure. Uh, It turns out that a lot of the things that you've heard about, almost everything that you've heard about, such as, you know, there's these fundamental forces like gravity, and you need to have the right proportion of these forces, the electromagnetic force, there's two nuclear forces. All of them play a key role for life, and you've got to get them in the right proportion. And then the, the different kinds of fundamental particles, or even in some cases composite particles that are key to life, like protons and neutrons, are very have to be uh, sensitively set with respect to their mass. Mm-hmm. And the charge is something also that comes into play with that. So with gravity, let's talk about that for a minute, because that's something everybody's familiar with. You're seated or walking about or driving in your car thanks to, it, by and large, gravity. Uh, so if the Earth had more, if the Earth was more dense, let's say, it was packed with more uh, matter, what would gravity be like? Well, we could quantify it if you were more specific <laughs> in your quantification. But, uh, no, I mean, yeah, it could certainly have affected things differently. Really what we're talking about here is more of the constant G in the equations, okay. this gravitational strength, which is, is maybe a good opportunity to draw a distinction between the kind of fine-tuning that I'm advocating in terms of an argument for God versus yeah. environmental fine-tuning. Sure, sure. So there are a number of things out there that are interesting and do seem to be somewhat improbable. You know, um, So gravity has a number. Is that correct? And that's part of the wonder of this fine-tuning. Is that, is that... There's a constant that shows up in the equations that is generally referred to with a capital G. And that constant needs to have a fairly specific value among what we think would be possible. If you, for example, conceive of gravity as being able to be as strong as the strongest force, which would be the strong nuclear force, then it could have been something like 42 or more orders of magnitude stronger that would be hard to walk around in a in a 40 ordered magnitude greater than what we have right now. Yeah. We'd weigh like thousands of pounds. <laughs> yeah, way 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 more than that actually. Yeah, more than trillions of trillions right. of trillions of so pounds. Essentially so. if the force of gravity was what it was, you couldn't be driving or shopping or walking or breathing. There would just be we'd be sludge crawling around on the ground if we were doing that, right? Yeah, thankfully gravity is is incredibly weak compared to the other forces. Yeah. Even though, as you said, you know, it's the one we're most familiar with. It seems yeah. really strong, right? If I right. go jump off this building, it's not going to be pleasant. But <laughs> no. thankfully, um, it's a lot weaker than it otherwise could have been. In fact, Leonard Susskind of Stanford, he says it's, he uses the, this phrase, it's an unexplained miracle that gravity is as weak as it is. Does now, he really he's not a believer that... in God. But no, no, he certainly it's not. It's by miracle. He doesn't mean literally a divine yeah. miracle, but he... He acknowledges that it's very weak compared to the other forces and that in some sense it's improbable. And I think that's that's what gets the attention of even skeptical physicists. So you have so many things that seem surprising so many and yet that, necessary for life. Yeah, so many things that line up in a naturalistic worldview. This is uh, an incredible coincidence after coincidence after coincidence. Is that how it's being explained? Well, I think they they do want to try to minimize the coincidences, and that's yeah. that's where we could later maybe get into, you know, the the multiverse theory as sure, a candidate way sure. to give them more chances. Okay, so we talked about gravity a little bit. Let oh. me mention one, one more thing about that. If 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 you want to understand why it's important, a useful analogy might be to think about its importance for long-lived stars, mm-hmm. because 
if you think about what a star is, you know, it's basically a nuclear bomb held together by gravity. Yeah. So you've got all these nuclear fusion reactions going on, producing or releasing a lot of energy, and yet it's stable. Our sun will burn, you know, for another 10 billion years. Yeah. In fact, uh, I just was online a couple of days ago, and astronomers are talking about how the sun has entered a period of minimum sunspot activity. And uh, yeah. NASA put a picture up, I think it was NASA, or the, the, the Solar Observatory uh, gave us a, an image of a sun, of our sun, without a single sunspot on it. It was eerily calm. Oh, wow. Was, I'm not sure I've ever seen that. That's no, interesting. No, it was, it was amazing. And uh, astronomers are saying that they anticipated a low sunspot activity, but that they were surprised at how quickly and how calm the sun has been in the last, in the first half of this year. And so that's the one thing about our star, given all the other stars that uh, the, the nature of most other stars in the universe are, is very volatile. They're exploding, they're spinning. Most suns have companions. Uh, there's orbital constants of, of, of suns going around suns, and sun, some stars have multiple star systems. Uh, the gravity, the size, the mass, the luminosity, the heat, the temperature. We have a unique little luminary at the center of our system, don't we? It's incredibly stable. Yeah. So, and there's a lot of math that goes into the stability of that, of that sun, the balance between the gravity on the exterior, because the sun is, is ginormous on the outside, but on the interior, it's like you said, it's a nuclear furnace that's doing nuclear fission, right? It's, or no, fusion, fusion, Primarily excuse me. fusion. Yeah, yeah, it's fusing hydrogen and helium together. And that, so there's the combination of that energy uh, pushing against the large mass, gravitational mass of, of the sun itself. So there has to be that precise balance, doesn't there? Yeah, it turns out there's a lot of ways to mess up long-lived stars. If you yeah. start playing with particle masses or force strengths, you uh -huh. can quickly deteriorate and make it shut not off the so lights. stable. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> shut off the lights. Uh, okay, so what's another, what's another uh, common example that, that people might be interested in regarding fine-tuning that you like? Something that, uh, that, that made you curious or more curious. Okay, we could talk in terms of many different things. The, the neutron, if it was one one-thousandth heavier, stars would not be able to create Okay, that's interesting. Elements. The neutron is at the center of an atom, and it shares the center of the atom with a proton, right? Protons yeah, and protons neutrons. and neutrons. And so you're saying the that the... Nucleus of the atom. So these two little pairs are at the center of the nucleus of an atom. And so say again what the neutron, what's special about the neutron, its mass? It's, it's mass, yes. If, and if you change the mass of the neutron relative to the proton, you can end up with scenarios where maybe you don't even have protons in the universe. Wow. Or, yeah, like I said, you could mess up the ability for stars to create the larger elements. And that's dialed down to the very, very small, right? So you have to have that precision at that level, at the, at the extraordinarily tiny, because we're talking about atoms. You can't see atoms with your eyes, and they're, they're, they're smaller than you can imagine. And yet there has to be a mass of this little tiny thing uh, precisely balanced so that we can have stars. And you and I and uh, Costco and Walmart and food and, and our cars and everything else. That's right. Yeah, another example would be the electromagnetic force strength, which seems to be finely tuned so that matter can form in the early universe so that quarks are stable, these constituent particles that make up the protons and neutrons. So what, uh, briefly, in, in layman's terms, what is the electromagnetic force? This would relate to the strength of, you know, you have, for example, the electrons are attracted to protons. They each have uh -huh. the same charge, and in some quantum dynamical sense, they're orbiting yeah. the nucleus. 
Um, and so there's this, you know, the force, you can, you can measure that force. The strength between the electron. Yeah, the strength of attraction or repulsion, yeah, depending on whether you're you dealing with positive it. to right. positive or positive to negative charges. We can't have the electron crashing into the proton. That wouldn't work. That's right. Without quantum mechanics, by the way, you would, you would not have stable atoms. They would all decay in something like 10 to the negative 13th seconds. So there's, there's, so no there's examples also at that level of the laws themselves have to be just right for life. Okay. Or the Pauli exclusion principle is what prevents all the electrons from going to the lowest energy level around atoms. And without that, you don't really have chemistry. Right. It's like a, there's like, a, as I understand it, atoms, like you say, orbit the nucleus, but they do so, for lack of a better term, at levels to which they can ascend or descend, correct? There's quantized energy levels at which they can exist. And when they, an electron jumps a level, it emits a photon, right? Yeah. So that's how we get light. You have electrons jumping up and down, <laughs> like your exactly. kids <laughs> wanting to do something, right? So when they jump up and down, you, they, they, they give off a photon. And I know that's what uh, Dr. Lawrence Krauss thinks uh, is an example of a photon coming out of nothing. But it's not nothing. It's something. It's an <laughs> electron right. <laughs> changing energy levels. Uh, so this is all at the very small. Uh, we talked about gravity, which is the force of the very large. It keeps the planets and the suns in orbits. And then uh, we've, we've got down into the center of the atom at the nucleus, talking about masses of protons and neutrons. And protons and neutrons are held together by quarks, and we, won't, we could go there if you wanted made, to. Made up of quarks. Made up of quarks. And so there's, there's, there's stuff all the way down to the very, very small that seems to have uh, the necessity of being very, very finely tuned. Uh, is there another example you want to? Oh. Maybe one last one that, that's gotten, in particular, a lot of uh, interest in the scientific community, something called the cosmological constant. Okay. And it sort of relates to what you were mentioning that, about Krauss, the Krauss reference. Mm -hmm. um, it seems to be most people, well, it's a little complicated, but the, the short story is that it's a repulsive force on the universe that's okay, causing so it to Einstein, expand. this is the, the cosmological constant. Uh, for, for a layman like me, let me see if I can articulate it, is the lambda, the Greek, Lambdas, the yes. Greek letter that Albert Einstein put into his equation to keep the universe from moving. So it was like a parking brake. It was a, it was a way to preserve a static universe yeah, he's at like, the time I don't everybody expected it to be static. Right. Yeah. I don't like the moving universe, so I'm going to put a parking brake on it, right? And so it, the lambda looks like a parking brake. <laughs> That's how I looked at it. And then, then he turned around and he realized after uh, Edwin Hubble's work uh, with the Hooker Telescope and the, the, the knowledge of our, the expansion of the universe, uh, he called that little insertion his greatest blunder. Right. But but yes. now physicists are saying, wait, hold on. There's some value to Einstein's little handbrake. It's not being used as a handbrake now, but as an accelerator. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, it's ironic, isn't it? It is. When Einstein makes a mistake, it's still brilliant. <laughs> and he turns out to be right after all. Right, right. Really, the mistake, I think, was more to do with the fact that it was a meta unstable situation. Like he was trying to balance out the universe so that it would be static, mm -hmm. but the tiniest perturbation would have made it would not, have not it. static anyway. It I think have. that was really where the blunder was, but it was natural in general relativity to have the possibility of a constant term. Yeah. Well, and he was kind of trying to make like a balancing a pencil on your fingertip and the, the slightest perturbation would send the pencil exactly. spiraling downward. And so, so the Lambda was the thing that kept the pencil balanced on the finger. 
right? That's right. And it, and uh, he was trying to get prevent that from being knocked off, but he realized that it didn't take much to knock it off, and so he tried to glue it down. So now it's actually the cosmological constant, the lambda, is actually expanding the universe. Yeah, in the late 90s, looking at type 1a supernovas that were very distant, we could tell that the universe must be accelerating its expansion. And so there must be some kind of repulsive force. And this is understood to be some combination of a contribution from general relativity and more likely from quantum field theory, where we have... Um, the, if you take... The, there seems to be this zero-point energy a lowest energy state. Yeah, what's the lowest in space time? Yeah, what is the lowest amount of energy that can exist in the universe at any given time? Right. Even after you pull the particles out of a certain region of space time, it still has energy. Still has energy. It's quantum in it. vacuum. Okay. And we know that contributions to that energy level are enormous, enormously bigger than than what we find in our universe. But there's both positive and negative contributions. They can cancel out. But somehow there's this near miraculous cancellation that results in a small positive value that's giving us a repulsion to the universe mm. and sending it accelerating outwards. And as I understand it, uh, if the universe, if this cosmological constant, this acceleration rate was going faster, there would not have been any way for the universe to have formed in the, in the beginning, correct? It would have had an enormous impact on the, yeah, in the early universe. Today, you could change it a little bit, and it wouldn't be that big of a deal because we've already expanded a lot. But in the early universe in particular, if it had we had it. the cosmological constant of the same value equal to what we know are some of the positive contributions, you would have had the universe flying apart too much. so rapidly you would never get too any much. complex structures formed at And all. then if it was too slow you don't have anything but the universe basically imploding on itself like a little kid trying to blow up a balloon, just can't get enough air in the balloon, and the balloon skin collapses on itself. It could have been zero, which would have been fine, but it, it certainly couldn't have been a negative value of, of much mm. magnitude or it would have caused the universe to recollapse on itself okay. extremely rapidly. So it seems like at the present time, the current cosmological theory is somebody's got their foot on the gas at just the right speed limit, if I'm using an analogy properly. Would you say that's correct? Yes, although, yeah, that's sort of a metaphor anyway. <laughs> it I mean, is. It, it, it may is. be that God, cre you know, I believe God created it all, but he may have empowered, you know, yeah. the, the in empty energy density of empty space with this kind of repulsive force that sure. causes it to happen. Right, right. You but it is important that it's at just the right strength. Yeah, there's, uh, it's, it's like uh, on my way out here today, I passed a few speed traps, and I was making sure I was going 60. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Maybe a little under, <laughs> but anything over would have gotten me a ticket. All right, so those are some pretty good examples. Again, we recommend to you uh, Luke Barnes and Durant Lewis's book, A a Fortunate Universe, a great little book. Alistair McGrath also has a book called A Fine-Tuned Universe. I think it is, is called that. That's a good introduction to it as well. Sure. Uh, there's some other books. Martin Rees's book, The First, uh, the Just Six Just Numbers. Numbers, is also a very readable book. It's, uh, it's, it is. It's, it's very jargonless. Uh, Dr. Rees is not a Christian, but at least you, he gives you a good picture of the six numbers that that uh, current cosmological theories uh, all pretty much standardly embrace as being the, the constants, as we call them. He's basically taking six finely tuned constants and, and breaking them down, explaining them okay. Okay. for a lay audience. There's there's really more than just six. And okay. I think it was Richard Carrier that once made the mistake of thinking that, oh, there's six fundamental parameters in physics now. But no, it's just <laughs> he chose an example of six 
yeah. particularly important. Yeah, so there's there's much more, tuned. but he just focused on the six. So those those are all good books if you want to get started in on the topic. On our next episode, we'll talk a little bit about why we think knowing something about fine tuning is important. Because as you and I often interact, Alan, with people that are uh, not Christians who do know, it seems at least more about this subject than Christians do. We seem to be a lot of people. It just seems to be well, it's science. It's over my head. It doesn't matter. But there are a lot of popular atheists on in social media uh, that regularly, routinely talk about this, and it seems like there needs to be more of a voice, um, a, a compassionate and an informed response from the church on this. And so I hope, uh, we hope, that these conversations will help you at least dig in and start uh, looking into these things for yourself. So the next episode, we'll talk about a little bit more about the popular uh, atheistic approaches uh, that you might encounter with your friends or on YouTube or at school or something. Uh, about the fine-tuning. Great.